It is absolutely my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today's Critical Care Grand Rounds. So today we're lucky enough to have Dr. Willard Applefeld with us. Um, so um, Willard uh, uh, crossed paths here at the University of Maryland where he did his medical school training before going on to do his residency at Johns Hopkins. He completed his critical care fellowship at the National Institutes of Health and is currently doing his, um, his cardiology fellowship at Duke University. Uh, Willard is sort of an expert in all things that come to cardiopulmonary hemodynamics and cardiopulmonary physiology. I was delighted when he offered to share today's talk about RV structure and imaging. Um, and he assured me that it would not be too far over our head as most of us are probably not cardiologists who are on this talk. Um, this is one of hopefully at least three talks I can convince Willard to come share with us um, about his expertise. And I'm just absolutely so delighted to have him here today. It's been fun to kind of watch him grow up from medical student to now cardiology fellow. I'm excited to have him featured on the Maryland CC project. Um, and without taking up any more time, Willard, uh, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to hear your talk. Thank you for that very warm introduction. I, I really appreciate it. Coming back to Maryland and, and NIH is like coming back home. Uh, I love both these places. Um, uh, it's uh, really an honor to be here um, and uh, to talk to you guys about something that I think is quite interesting, RV structure and uh, point of care imaging. Um, in terms of my disclosures, um, you know, one, my views don't represent those of Duke or, or University of Maryland. And then my uniform disclosure that I have on all my talk is that I'm really not an artist. So you're going to have to excuse the poor illustrations. Um, and then more of a uh, specific one for this talk. You know, I'm not going to talk too much about RV failure. There have been a lot of really amazing articles that have been written, specifically one by uh, Brian Houston and Tedford uh, in the New England Journal that got published a few weeks ago um, that are worthwhile checking out. But just sort of the con time constraints of this talk, I think it's worthwhile really focusing on how we image this uh, uh, hard to image ventricle. Um, so well, we're gonna describe the anatomical divisions of the right ventricle. We're gonna understand the factors that try to influence uh, RV performance. And then we're gonna to try to figure out um, what we can and cannot look at echocardiographically. And then lastly, we're gonna to try to understand the implications this might have uh, for clinical care in the clinical arena. So to start, um, let's talk a little bit first about anatomy of the right ventricle. Um, so when we look at a chest X-ray, really the right ventricle is the most anteriorly situated cardiac chamber. I think this is probably no surprise to our traumatology colleagues, especially here at University of Maryland. Um, this is a, the ventricle itself rests right behind the sternum, and it's at the and it forms the inferior border of the cardiac silhouette when we look at it on chest X-ray. Um, if you uh, look at the uh, if you look at chest X-rays themselves, what you'll see is that um, the the uh, kind of the most posterior chamber is the left atrium. That's the one that we image through when we do TEEs uh, to look at the left atrial appendage. Um, next to that, and sort of really a little anterior to that is the right atrium. Um, and then uh, overlying that sort of is this, the LV that we're all very comfortable seeing on chest X-ray. And then the right ventricle, as you can see, is this sort of triangular based structure that overlies uh, the heart. Uh, it's the most anterior structure. Um, in terms of its shape, it's actually uh, quite interesting. Whereas the left ventricle is a prolate ellipse, the right ventricle is this triangular crescentic structure. Um, I'm showing you here uh, uh, a cast mold, an endocast of a normal heart. Um, and what you'll notice is that the right ventricle, which is colored in gray, is sort of this very triangular structure from its inflow point to its outflow tract. Um, and it really curves over the left ventricle um, uh, and uh, really is kind of anterocephalad to that. Uh, it forms this very important crossover point where the pulmonic uh, artery is above the uh, sort of anterocephalad to the uh, aortic, um, uh, to the aorta, uh, and the 
RV outflow tract is sort of anterior to that, uh, with the pulmonary valve forming the most superior valve in the heart. This becomes important in, congen in certain congenital heart diseases where you do lose uh, that crisscross arrangement, um, which can give you uh, some clues as to what ventricle you're looking at when you're imaging it. Um, it, the RV itself is divided into three uh, areas. The first is the uh, RV inlet um, that is formed by the tricuspid valve, the chordae tendini, and the papillary muscles for the tricuspid valve. Um, sort of at the apex is this trabeculated apical myocardium. And then in the outflow tract is the infundibulum. It's sometimes called the conus. Uh, and that really forms this smooth myocardial outflow uh, region. Um, the uh, RV inlet itself uh, can be imaged in uh, three different views. Um, it's this green area right here that I've denoted next to the membrane septum. Um, uh, you'll see it in the apical four-chamber view. It's the part of the uh, right ventricle that is um, right below the, uh, uh, the mitral valve and the tricuspid valve. It forms that area of the septum. You can also acquire it in the RV-focused four-chamber view. Um, and uh, when you're looking at the short axis, it's forming this area right here. Um, the trabeculated myocardium uh, occupies a large portion of the septum and therefore is visible in a variety of views. It's view visible in the parasternal long axis view as the part of the septum that you're seeing the most. In the apical four chamber view, it's the part of the septum that is probably the biggest part of the septum. And of course, as you're tilting up uh, into your apical five chamber view, you're seeing the aortic valve um, and then you're seeing most of this, uh, uh, you're seeing most of the septum, which is the trabeculated myocardium of the right ventricle. Um, and then superior to that next to the aortic valve is sort of this membranous septum. And sometimes we'll see membranous VSDs there. Uh, in your RV focused view, your four-chain review, you're also going to see it. And in your short axis view, it's the uh, it's, it's sort of this part of the septum here. Um, the infundibulum is the area next to the RV outflow tract. Um, I've marked that kind of in orange. What you'll note here is that in your apical four chamber or in your parasternal long axis view, what you'll uh, see is, is this area sort of uh, intercephalide to the um, uh, uh, right, right next to the aorta. Um, similarly, in your short axis view, that's mostly what you're going to see. You are going to see some membranous um, septum here, but mostly what you're seeing is this infundibular region, this conus that forms the RV outflow tract itself. Um, the RV anatomically also has three bands to it. The first is the parietal band, um, which is part of what's called the ventriculo-infundibular fold. Um, and what that forms is uh, part of the subpulmonary. Uh, that just forms sort of this relationship between the uh, uh, between the inflow and the apical region. Um, uh, then what you also have is the septomarginal band that's also sometimes called the septomarginal um, trabeculation. Um, it has two limbs to it. It has this anterior superior limb and a um, and an in sort of posterior inferior limb. With the posterior inferior limb sort of eventually becoming um, uh, interfacing with part of the moderator band. So you can see here this ventricular infundibular fold, um, and then the septomarginal trabeculation, and then the moderator um, band itself. Um, when you zoom in and you look at this, what you'll note is that you have um, uh, this ventricular, here's the ventricular infundibular fold, here's the septomarginal band, and this is the moderator um, uh, band there. And that sort of uh, helps helps us in cardiology to find what sort of anatomic, what we're anatomically dealing with in terms of VSDs. Um, the walls itself uh, are supplied mostly by the RCA. And the reason why that is, is because in most patients, about 80% of them, the posterior descending artery 
originates from the RCA, um, with the lateral wall of the right ventricle being supplied by an acute marginal branch off of this um, RCA. Um, uh, and what you'll notice, it's, this is sort of what you're seeing when you're looking at it with a coronary ultrasound in the apical four chamber view and the apical five chamber view. It's the lateral wall that for the most part is being fed in most people by the right coronary artery. Um, and similarly in the peristernal short axis, you'll, you'll also see that as well. I'm gonna show you some angiography films. Um, let me see if I can get this to play. Yeah. So here, what you'll see is you're now um, you're performing a uh, you're performing a coronary angiogram of the uh, RCA, and what you'll note is that your um, you'll note that these kind of vessels that are coming off of the RCA here, those are acute marginal vessels, and then a vessel that's running along the bottom of the heart here. This is the PDA, so it's the posterior descending artery, and that's feeding the inferior part of the septum, whereas those acute marginals are feeding the lateral uh, wall of the RV. Um, this is, uh, again, now you're looking at a little bit of a different projection and it becomes pretty clear where those acute marginals are and how the PDA itself is forming a, uh, is forming this area along the uh, bottom part of the septum that's feeding the inferior part of the septum. Um, so as I said, the posterior wall and the infraceptor walls is supplied for the most part by the PDA in most people. In the RV-focused view, what you're going to see, or RV-focused four-chamber view, what you'll see is that lateral wall. That's mostly, again, um, supplied by the PDA. And in your RV-focused two-chamber view, again, you'll see that kind of inferior wall um, is supplied by the PDA. In the short axis, um, you'll note, again, this uh, inferior wall and this posterior wall are all fed by uh, the posterior descending artery. Because the posterior descending artery is running right here along the bottom part of the heart. Um, in this interventricular groove and it's running up towards the apex of the heart. And so it's feeding this area of the wall. Um, and here's a nice shot of a PDA. What you'll note is this large vessel that's running towards you is uh, feeding the inferior aspect of that, uh, of the septum. Um, so most individuals, as I said, are right dominant. Um, and however, you know, the anterior wall of the heart is really supplied by the blood vessel that's going to supply the septum. And most people, that's, uh, and almost all people, that's the left anterior descending artery. Um, so if you remember, the anterior part of the uh, RV, in addition to the LV, is all supplied to the left anterior descending artery. When you're looking at coronary angiograms, what you'll see is it's the LAD is usually a large vessel. The LAD, because it has to feed the septum, must give off septal perforators. And so whenever you see septal perforators, you know you see the LD. And it usually wraps around the apex of the heart and splits into two, almost like a forked tongue when you get um, past the apex. Here, what you're seeing is a large wraparound LAD. It's this vessel that runs around and, and wraps the, the apex of the heart. Um, uh, for the most part, the infundibulum is supplied by the conal artery that comes off the right uh, coronary artery. About 30% of cases have a separate ostea of this artery. Um, and importantly, sometimes we'll, uh, it can accidentally be engaged when um, you are tapping somebody. And when contrast dye is injected into it and occludes flow to it, it can prove quite arrhythmogenic. And so in, in the cath lab, we look very closely to make sure we're not dampened when we engage the right coronary artery um, because you don't want to engage the conus. And if you engage the conus and inject contrast dye, you can fibrillate the patient. Um, so... Here, you'll again, this is a nice right coronary artery shot giving rise to acute marginals coming off and a PDA that's 
downs toward that is down towards the uh, the apex and running along the interventricular septum, and you're seeing it in just two different projections right here. Um, and then you can see the conus artery that's coming up towards the top. You don't want to engage. Um, uh, you don't want to be engaged into this conus artery. It's feeding the conus branch um, uh, and the RV outflow tract. Um, you know, in the 80% of people who, uh, as I said, 80% of the time, the PDA comes off of the RCA, and the remaining 20% of time, the uh, posterior descending artery comes off the left circumflex. Um, and what I'm showing you here is a situation where that, um, where that occurs. You can see at the very bottom, you know, the PDA is going to be coming off the, the circuit you know, left dominant or a co-dominant system. And you can see this vessel running uh, kind of beneath the LAD in the shot. So this is the LAD that's running here. Um, beneath it is the, um, is the PDA that's coming off the circumflex. Uh, in terms of the blood supply to the papillary muscles, you really have three different bands you have to, uh, you have to think about. The anterior papillary is supplied by both the LAD and the RCA. There's a tremendous amount of um, anastomotic arteries that are found in the subendocardial zone um, uh, in the posterior wall. Um, and it uses the papillary muscles to traverse. Here I'm showing you um, a large branch of the um, um, LAD that's, that's running, that's been giving off an artery that's running through the moderator band um, and is feeding the lateral wall. It's this big artery right here. Um, the posterior papillary is usually supplied off the PDA but frequently supply, receives its terminal, uh, its supply from the terminal branch of the septal, septal perforator off the LAD. So this LAD gives off these septal perforators that run through the septum, um, and those uh, can oftentimes anastomose to the PDA, to the arteries in the PDA. The moderator band is uh, fed by oftentimes a septal perforator off the LAD um, that runs through the moderator band and really supplies the anterior papillary and the anterior lateral RV free wall. So the RV is fed well, and it's fed not only by the RCA, but also by the LAD. That's why a lot of times people can survive with, uh, and very frequently do survive with chronic total exclusions of their right coronary artery. Um, uh, there is, as I said, a significant amount of anastomotic connection between the left and the right arterial system. Mostly this occurs in the subendocardial zone and the outer half of the posterior wall. And you can see here in the stereotactic radiography of the coronary system, you can see these really impressive anastomotic areas where blood is able to reach the lateral wall of the RCA through um, anastomotic connections from the LAD. Um, and uh, mostly that's from the, uh, and, and that also helps feed the anterior papillary muscle itself. Um, fascinatingly, the RV musculature has a, has a uh, conformation that's different from what's in the LV. Um, the, right uh, ventricle musculature is composed of both superficial and deep layers. Here I'm showing you a really beautifully dissected heart um, that uh, shows you the different muscular fibers in both the RV and the LV. Um, you have superficial fibers that are arranged circumferentially in a direction that's really parallel to the AV groove. And as they sort of near the front of the heart, um, uh, which is the sternal, uh, you know, the sternocostal aspect, they take this oblique turn and become the superficial fibers of the LV. So you can see they, um, you can see they take this, uh, this turn from the RV and become this very superficial um, fibers of the LV that are arranged in a different orientation. Um, you have a real continuity of muscle fibers between the LV and the RV that serves to functionally bind the ventricle together. 
And so um, what happens is that LV contraction, therefore, contributes to RV contraction because the LV contraction really causes the RV free wall to, uh, to be pulled inward and contributes this idea of ventricular interdependence. And then while this is happening, while the RV free wall is being pulled inward by the circumferential motion from the superficial fibers and by the motion of the LV fibers, you also have deep fibers in the, uh, in the RV that are serving to longitudinally shorten the RV from the base to the apex. So you have this motion that is both a shortening and a squeezing in, which is a little bit different than how the LV squeezes. The LV squeezes, but has actually three muscle layers, uh, which serves to uh, contort the ventricle, the LV, translate it, rotate it, and thicken it all at the same time. Um, in terms of the hemodynamics of the RV, it's really informed by the muscle layer um, informed by the muscle layer itself. And that's because, so the RV pump is really comprised of three movements. Um, you have these circumferential muscle fibers that shorten and cause this RV free wall to move inward. It's analogous to a bellows that you might find in an old house with an old wood fireplace. And then you have a longitudinal fibers that shorten and contract, which shorten the RV from the, in the long axis dimension and moves the tricuspid valve annulus towards the apex. And then lastly, you have this contraction of the LV that, um, as I said, exerts torsion on the RV free wall itself because there are just so many points of, of attachment. And so the RV pumping motion is, is, uh, is a very interesting movement. Um, in general, when we talk about cardiac function, we think that cardiac function is dependent on really three things. The first is preload, which is the relationship between end diastolic pressure and end diastolic volume. Uh, Preload in and of itself is dependent on a variety of topics, which, um, you know, if you guys invite me back, I'm happy to talk about, uh, including initial ventricular volume, wall stiffness, pericardial constraint, the compliance of the chest wall, the depth of inspiration, um, the position of the heart in the chest, the abdominal um, musculature or adiposity, edema in the heart, fibrosis, ischemia, or how long the filling period lasts. All of these influence preload. Contractility is a little bit of a difficult subject to conceptualize, but can be thought of as sort of a load independent measure of intrinsic contractile strength. So that's the, that's the contractile strength of the ventricle, not dependent upon its filling process. Um, and it really represents the relationship between the pressure the ventricle generates at any given filling volume on the Frank starting relationship. Everyone on this call has probably influenced contractility to some degree with catecholamines or calcium channel blockers or beta blockers. Um, and the heart itself influences contractility by, cal by cycling calcium within the, vent within the uh, cells themselves. Uh, afterload um, is, are, includes the factors that really oppose the shortening of muscle fibers. There are a variety of different types of ways to conceptualize afterload. Everything is simple as a muscle lifting weights that's represented by Hooke's law. Um, transmural wall stress is represented by the law of Laplace. Um, impedance spectra, peripheral vascular resistance, pulmonary vascular resistance, and then also elastance itself. Um, but really, you can think about it as the load the RV must overcome during the ejection of blood. So those three factors um, all result in changes, uh, and, and changes in any of those three factors um, will uh, modify uh, cardiac function. Um, and then additionally, RV function will be modified by RV myofibril movement and the alignment of RV myofibrils. Um, the RV itself is coupled to a low impedance, highly distensible pulmonary circuit. 
Um, and when you think about it, pulmonary vascular resistance is a lot lower than systemic vascular resistance. Um, and that's because pulmonary arteries are much more distensible than systemic arteries. Um, and the pulmonary circuit has lower uh, pulse pressure reflection coefficient. So unlike in the systemic circuit where you have this huge reflection in the peripheral wave after pulse pressure generation, um, which generates a nice big diacritic notch, the pulmonary circuit is a lot more compliant. And so you don't reflect pressure um, as badly or as quickly back from the periphery uh, or as dramatically. Um, Furthermore, right-sided pressures are a lot lower than left-sided pressures, uh, and, the, and subsequently, the RV is much more affected by afterload changes. Um, if you overfill the RV, you can distort RV structure and impinge on the LV, which in of itself will depress global cardiac function. What I'm showing you here in this graph is the stroke volume on the y-axis and the um, transmural pressure graph on the x-axis. And what you'll note is that as you dramatically increase pressure, the RV, uh, the RV's uh, stroke volume falls off really dramatically, whereas the LV can tolerate a wide range of pressure changes. And this is kind of intuitive to people. Um, when you when you've seen some, you probably have seen people in clinic who have sometimes have blood pressures of 160 and sometimes have blood pressures of 120. But if you were to change your RV, uh, your pulmonary pressures by 40 millimeters of mercury, those people would be in the ICU of some kind. Um, RV hemodynamics uh, is interesting because the RV fills and ejects differently than the left ventricle. The RV will start filling before the LV. Um, and initially what happens is that the RV pressure will peak rapidly and then decline rapidly. Um, RV uh, also has a isovolumic contraction time. Here that's loaded, uh, here that's labeled as your um, PEP or the uh, pre-estolic uh, period, uh, um, pre-ejection period rather. Um, and that's in the RV, that's a lot shorter than the LV. And that's the reason why that is, is because the RV has to generate a lot of uh, pressures, a lot less than the LV has to. So rather than the, rather than the aorta, you know, the, the LV having to generate a pressure of 120 to 140 or 160 before it, the aortic valve opens and it begins to eject, the RV only has to generate a pressure of 20 or 30 before it ejects. Most fascinatingly, um, the RV has this period called a hangout interval. Um, at Duke, everything is about basketball. And so we think about this as sort of the fadeaway jump shot. So a basketball player jumping up uh, into the air, releasing the ball and the ball still being in motion as the basketball player lands. Um, what happens is uh, in the RV, you continually have flow into the pulmonary circuit even after the RV pressure is lower than the pulmonary pressure. And so what happens is you have this end systolic flow that continues even in the presence of a negative ventricular arter arterial pressure gradient. And that's really due to the momentum of blood um, from the RV into the PA. Um, so how do we image the RV? Well, when we image it, we have to assess all of these different parameters. You have to assess the RV structure, the preload, the contractility, the afterload, and importantly, the relationship that the RV has with the LV, because that in and of itself is very important. But what makes an RV an RV? An RV is more apically displaced. It has an apical hinge line of the tricuspid valve septal leaflet relative to the anterior mitral valve leaflet. All that means is that the tricuspid valve is more apically displaced than the mitral valve. The RV has a moderator band. 
the RV has greater than three papillary muscles. Um, and then the uh, tricuspid valve has the word tri in it. So it has a tri it's tri-leaflet configurations um, and it has septal papillary attachments. One of the first things I learned when I started cardiology fellowship was that the RV is septophilic, the LV is septophobic. Um, and so if you see papillaries attached to the septum, it's the RV. And then there's these, these very coarse trabeculations in the RV that is not present in the LV, excluding something like LV non-compaction. Um, but the geometry of the RV really complicates imaging. You know, you can take an apical forechamber and cut the heart sort of along this yellow line and generate this apical forechamber imaging. But here you miss out on a tremendous part of the conus. Um, alternatively, you can do a kind of an RV focused four and you cut along this line, but again, you'll miss out on the conus as well. Well, you can do a basal short axis view, in which case you'll catch the RA and maybe the conus, but you'll miss out on the rest of the RV. Well, you can just a short axis view in general. And again, you'll see maybe a little bit of the tricuspid and the inflow, but you'll miss out on the, the conus or other aspects of the, uh, or the inflow mandibulum. Um, and so really what we have to do is we have to reconstruct a three-dimensional picture of the RV in our minds from multiple different views. Um, I'll give you some structural measurements of the RV for reference on what a normal RV is. I'll warn you that most of these are obtained from cardiac MRI, which is a great way of imaging the RV if your patient can tolerate it. Um, a normal RV has an end diastolic volume of about 75 and a mass of about 26 grams and a free wall thickness of anywhere from two to five millimeters of mercury. And as I said, you should see the inflow region, the trabeculated myocardium and the infundibulum with an infundibulum accounting for anywhere between 25 to 30% of the RV volume. And frequently it's missed on some of our point of care imaging modalities. And so therefore, like a lot of these views, as I said, are really practically more obtained on cardiac MRI, which can be difficult in our critically ill patients. So practically, how do you assess it? Well, you know, I tend to look for dilation. Um, if you see an RV volume greater than 100 uh, milliliters of mercury or uh, milliliters per meter squared, that is volume overload or an RV uh, max short axis distance of 43 millimeters of mercury is concerning for pressure overload. But functionally what you'll be doing is looking for a D-shaped uh, septum um, and, a, a, the D or a D and a D-shaped LV. So if the LV is, is kind of D-shaped and has an eccentricity index greater than one, you have either RV pressure or volume overload or both. Pressure overload uh, is defined as a systolic D-shaped septum uh, and volume overload is a diastolic um, D-shaped septum. And this sort of makes sense, right? Because the biggest volume that the RV and the LV will have will be during diastole. Um, and then the most pressure that both those chambers are going to generate are going to be during systole. And so if you have pressure overload, um, you'll have a systolic D-shaped septum. And if you have volume overload, you'll have a diastolic D-shaped septum. How you compute an eccentricity index is what you'll do is you'll take the minor axis diameter of the LV parallel to the septum, and then you measure the axis of the, uh, the minor axis of the LV perpendicular to the septum, and then you uh, divide the two. And so what you can see here is you see a, uh, you see eccentricity indices are both greater than one, although, um, uh, and that can give you a, that is concerning for pressure and volume overload to the, uh, to the RV itself. Um, you also have to assess diastology. That can be very difficult because the RV filling occurs in a different phases, and it's kind of hard to assess with one particular parameter. Um, the RV and diastolic pressure or RA pressure uh, will give you a hint. Uh, RA pressure itself, RV volume, the RV filling profile, 
or relaxation indices, just the time constant or isovolumic pressure decay, or lastly, RV pressure compliance, um, which really does require a knowledge of RV pressure itself. Um, all those can help you in assessing diastology. So how do you assess an RV and diastolic pressure or an RA pressure? Um, invasively, if you put a swan in someone, that's a really great way of assessing what your RV and diastolic pressure is. Um, and I've given you some normal values of what your a normal RA mean or a normal RV and diastolic pressure should be. Um, by echo, you can use inferential measurements. Um, this morning, I think we spoke a little bit about IVC diameter and collapsibility and the tricks that you can run into uh, and the tribulations you can run into with um, by just using this metric alone. Um, you can also look at the ratio of, um, uh, of filling to tissue movement, uh, uh, which is the EDE prime, or uh, filling uh, early filling to sort of uh, atrial contractility filling. Um, and an abnormal E to A ratio on echo is less than 0.8 or greater than two. An abnormal EDE prime is greater than six. What an abnormal EDE prime represents is that you, uh, the big E represents volume of blood movement and the little E prime represents tissue movement uh, during, um, during diastole. So you can imagine if the tissue is not moving much, but there's a lot of blood that's rushing into the RV from the RA, there's a high RA pressure. That means there's a high RA pressure gradient. And if the tissue is not moving, all of that blood is being rushed in because the, not because the ventricle is relaxing and sucking it in, but because the pressure in the right atrium is so high because you have a stiff ventricle or a stiff atrium. Um, and then similarly, um, uh, that, that sort of also applies to your E to A ratio where you know, if the E to A is um, particularly low, that means you're relying mostly on your atrial kick to generate um, ventricular filling. Or if your E to A is super high, what that indicates is that most of your filling is occurring early in diastole because your right atrial pressure is low and the ventricle is just so stiff because that's the diastolic abnormality that atrial kick is not helping you out too much. And you're not actually getting that much blood into your atria from the atrial kick. Um, you can also look at this E deceleration time with that. Um, uh, it's abnormal if it's less than 119 or greater than 242. Although some sources will say if it's less than 160, it's abnormal. What you can imagine is that um, uh, flow between the atria and the ventricle will equalize really quickly um, if there is not much of a pressure gradient between those, those two chambers. And so if you have a diastolic abnormality and your right ventricular pressure is very high during diastole, um, what will happen is you won't you, you will very quickly equalize those pressures. You can also look at the flow in the hepatic vein. Um, theoretically, um, you should have uh, more flow during uh, systole and diastole, um, but you'll have a reversal of systolic flow in severe MR or severe diastole, or sorry, severe TR or severe diastolic dysfunction. Um, Diastolic flow really predominates in hepatic veins, um, which is when, when that happens, that's concerning for high rate atrial pressure. So if you um, if you're seeing most of your flow that's into the uh, through the hepatic veins and filling the right atrium occurring uh, during uh, diastole, if that's when most of your flow is occurring there, that's really concerning that your right atrial pressure is high that you're not able to have any systolic filling of the right atrium. Um, in general, in the echo labs, we'll look at the IVC and the subcostal view in a patient who's supine and we'll measure one to two centimeters from the right atrial junction. We use a cutoff of less than 2.1 with a 50% collapsability with a small sniff, uh, corresponding to a right atrial pressure of three. 
an IVC of 2.1 with a less than 50% collapsibility or an IVC of greater than 2.1 with 50% collapsibility with SNF, giving us a pressure of eight. And if the IVC is plethoric or greater than 2.1 and it doesn't collapse, that's indicative of a rachial pressure of 15. Um, a caveat mTOR to this is that you should not use this in mechanically ventilated patients. And if you breathe in deeply enough, any one of us can collapse our IVC regardless of how much blood or fluid is on board. I'll show an example of this that I showed this morning. Uh, this is a, um, these are two examples of two different people. Um, one, you can see IVC dilation with inspiration. And one, you can see IVC collapse. And when you ask yourself which one is positive, you have to, um, you know, if you were just shown these two images, you might be fooled into thinking that it's this patient on the left with the IVC collapse that is the, that is um, quotes unquote positive. But what I'll show you is this is actually me. So this is an experiment I did where I drank two liters of water um, and then went up to the ICU and had uh, someone ultrasound my belly. Um, and I could, you know, with a deep enough sniff, collapse my IVC despite my volume status being high. And the patient on the right is one of the, is from an original study. This patient was mechanically ventilated with about 10 cc's of tidal volume. They were paralyzed. They were relaxed. All you can see is during at the end of inspiration, you have IVC dilation as um, your SVC and your IVC are compressed by in increasing intrathoracic pressure and back pressure causes engorgement of the IVC. Um, which was predictive of volume responsiveness in the study. So the cardiopulmonary interactions do play a role um, in assessing for right atrial pressure or right atrial volume. So uh, you can see that. Uh, and so which one is positive? That would be uh, the one on the right. Um, in terms of looking at contractility, one of the things that you can do is, you know, the geometry of the RV is so complex um, and the RV myofibers are arranged in such a unique way uh, that are different from the LV. It really makes comp uh, assessment of RV function uh, difficult. Um, you can use some really nice inferential measures. Um, one thing that's is very, very helpful is if you just acquire a RV short axis view, right? So you see the tri, basically the aortic valve right there. You see the tricuspid valve banging in and out. The pulmonic valve is hanging out here. And you'll notice that you really see disappearance of the RV outflow tract during systole. That means that the RV is moving vigorously, um, and you can uh, think about that as being maybe an RV that is less um, that is less dysfunctional, and so uh, it has good systolic function or contractile function. Um, uh, one thing you can also look <clears throat> look at is how vigorously is the RV itself moving, and to do that, you pick a rant, you pick a point that you know exists, and look at how much that's moving. Um, that is uh, traditionally looked at as the tricuspid annulus, and so you can see in this view. The tricuspid annulus is moving up and down, um, and the RV free wall is coming in robustly, um, which also helps you understand that maybe the RV is doing well and is not as dysfunctional. Uh, quantitatively, you can look at an RVEF. Again, the RVEF is going to be very dependent on loading conditions. Um, it will integrate views of contraction. It offers an you an integrated view of contraction and load. And because the RV is larger than the LV, the RVEF is going to be less than the LVEF because you have to keep stroke volumes equal. Blood flow into the heart needs to equal blood flow out of the heart. Otherwise, um, you have uh, some shunt physiology going down there. Um, in general, a uh, RVEF uh, less than 45 is considered abnormal. Um, 
Unfortunately, uh, the EF that we derive from ECHO only has a very modest correlation, 0.65, with the RVEF that is derived from MRI use. And again, a lot of that's due to the loss of the uh, pictures of the infundibular, um, uh, in the, or sorry, in the conus region. Um, quantitatively, you'll often see reports the fractional area change. What that is, is that's a ratio of the systolic area change, the diastolic RV area. Um, with the fractional area change being the end diastolic area minus the end systolic area divided by the end diastolic area. Again, just like the EF that's highly dependent on loading conditions and it offers you an integrated view of contraction and load. Um, uh, this does reflect both the radial and longitudinal uh, contributions of RV uh, contraction, um, but doesn't really take into account the uh, infundibular contribution, which again, if it's 30% of the volume can be substantial. Um, we say an R, a fact fractional area change less than 35 is indicative of RV systolic dysfunction. Um, and this is one you can do. You can get 3D, um, uh, you can get 3D uh, RV function uh, from a, uh, a TTE. And on this, you can do a fractional area change. Um, and again, this is something that your machines, either a GE or Philips, will report out. They'll report out an RVEF. They'll also report out a um, RV fractional area change of here and here on this patient, it's 42. Um, I don't know if a lot of the POCUS machines in the ICU have the ability to do this, uh, but definitely some of the more, our more formal echoes do. Um, in terms of quantitative measures of function, the one that you guys are probably the most uh, comfortable with using and the one that's probably most common in the report is that tricuspid annular plane systolic excursion or the TAPSI. What that's doing is that's measuring that longitudinal movement of that point that you've picked, that tricuspid valve. Um, uh, and really, um, although it incompletely captures the complex um, pumping pattern of the RV, it's probably a pretty easy one to look at. Um, unfortunately, it assumes the displacement of a single segment really represents this complex um, pumping motion and uh, complex 3D structure. As a result, sometimes our um, sometimes the correlation between the RVEF and the uh, TAPSI is actually quite poor um, in some studies. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the fact that it can be really inappropriately taken. And so if you have off-axis measurements, you can really underestimate the TAPSI. And again, like the uh, like the like the FAC or like the um, RVEF, this is really dependent on the load that the RV is experiencing. At the bedside, it can be very useful as a simple measure of estimating RV function. I tend to say an R, uh, a TAPSI less than 1.6 is concerning for impaired RV systolic function. And this is what a TAPSI will look like. What you'll do is you will put your uh, M-mode cursor through the uh, tricuspid annulus, and you uh, will pu push the M-mode button, and you should see these nice sine wave-like motions. And you'll measure um, from uh, you'll measure uh, between the tallest point and the lowest point, the valley and the trough, with again a value being of less of one point six than uh, and below being um, being concerning for RV systolic dysfunction. Again, sort of a buyer beware. If you go a little bit too me a little bit too medial, what can happen is you can actually catch the tricuspid valve leaflet itself, which is a freely moving structure. Um, and so as a result, you can overestimate TAPSI here and so you can fool yourself. So you really want to make sure that you're right on that tricuspid annulus and not on the leaflet. Um, other quantitative measures of function, the other one that we commonly do will be a tissue uh, will be the a tissue Doppler mat measurement at the tricuspid uh, valve leaflet, um, or sorry, tricuspid valve annulus rather. Um, 
And what you'll look at is you'll look at the maximal systolic velocity. So now you're directly measuring uh, tissue movement uh, uh, using, uh, uh, using your ultrasound. And what you'll do is you'll click the TDI button. Um, you'll, place your, um, you'll place your pulse wave Doppler over the tricuspid annulus and you'll press pulse wave Doppler. And what that'll do is that will give you a curve that looks like this. And what you'll do is you'll measure up here. And if it's greater than 10, um, it's, uh, it's helpful to, and, and it's helpful in believing that the RV is functioning normally. In general, it's really easy to measure. It's reliable, it's reproducible, and it really correlates well with other global measures of RV function. It's important that you have to keep the basal segment and the annulus aligned to avoid velocity underestimation. And again, like the TAPSI, it assumes that the function of a single segment is reflective of the whole ventricle. And it really does uh, incompletely capture that, 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 it, that pumping motion of the RV, which is both a longitudinal displacement as well as a contraction in words like a bellows. And again, as I said, less than 10 is uh, indicative of systolic dysfunction, uh, but lower can be normal in elderly patients. Another thing you can do if you really want to get fancy, and this is not something that is typically reported on echo, but it's something that you can easily do at bedside, is something called the RV index of myocardial performance or the RIMP. Sometimes you'll see it reported as the Tay index. Um, this is the ratio, this is the ratio of the time that the RV spends in uh, isovolumic contraction versus the uh, over the time that it spends ejecting blood with a thought being that the longer it's taking to generate pressure or relax, um, and the less time it's spending uh, ejecting blood is worse. And so it really reflects the relationship between ejection periods and non-ejection periods. It can uh, be calculated in really two ways. It's the isovolumic contraction time plus the isovolumic relaxation time divided by the ejection time, or the time the tricuspid valve is closed minus the ejection time divided by the ejection time. Um, it's it is independent of preload, afterload, and heart rate, um, but you have to take care in measuring it. You have to ensure non-consecutive beats have similar RR intervals to account for similar isovolumic contraction times and isovolumic relaxation times um, between beats. Uh, it can really be falsely low in conditions where there's elevated PA pressures that shorten the isovolumic relaxation time. Um, in general, a RIMP greater than 0.43 by pulse wave Doppler 0.54 by DTI, uh, which is tissue Doppler, really indicates RV dysfunction. Here's how you measure it um, by uh, pulse wave Doppler. What you'll do is you'll pulse just the tricuspid valve leaflets, and then you'll pulse right before the pulmonic valve leaflets. The tricuspid valve leaflets will give you your total contraction time and the pulmonic valve leaflets. What you can do is you can look here and see your total ejection time and you can subtract the ejection time from the time the tricuspid valve is closed. Um, and then divide it by your ejection time to get a RIMP. And that is the one that uh, should be greater than 0.43. Um, and then on a single beat, um, what you can do is you can, again, do pulse wave Dopplers over that tricuspid annulus, and you can measure the isovolumic contraction time and isovolumic relaxation time uh, and the ejection time. Or you can just measure the total contraction time and separate out the, eject and separate out the ejection time. Um, if you want to assess afterload, you can very easily assess PA pressures, or at least estimate them in an echo. Um, your systolic PA pressure will be your peak TR velocity. That's why we taught, that's why we oftentimes report it. Um, if you remember Bernoulli, uh, he postulated that in the moving fluid, um, pressure plus half of the density times V squared is constant everywhere. Um, and then a pressure gradient, therefore, must equal to half the density of blood 
um, times your uh, velocity, times the difference in velocity squared, um, or V2 is a distal velocity, and V1 is the proximal velocity. We generally ignore V1. We know what the density of blood is. Um, and so if you look at the formula, 0.5 times 0.76 is roughly about four. And so we in the echo lab use the simple Bernoulli equation, which is a change in pressure uh, is gonna be equal to four V squared. Uh, so the simplified Bernoulli really doesn't neglect the inertial components of the completed Bernoulli equation, but it does allow us some useful measurements at bedside. It allows us to very easily estimate RVSP by uh, imputing the peak TR jet velocity into a simplified Bernoulli equation and just adding what we think our RA pressure is. In general, TR velocities are normally less than 2.9, and in the absence of any gradient across the pulmonic valve, which is usually fair to assume, your RVSP should equal to your um, systolic, uh, uh, your peak uh, pulmonic systolic pressure. Um, you want to use the highest velocity TR signal on CW Doppler from multiple windows. Um, you can also estimate the diastolic pressure, which is the end diastolic pulmonic pulmonary regurgitant jet velocity, again, using the simplified Bernoulli equation, although it does um, uh, neglect inertial components of blood, um, with your PA diastolic pressure being equal to four times your end diastolic pulmonary regurgitant velocity squared plus your RA pressure. And then you can combine both of those elements of prior data um, to get your mean pulmonary arterial pressure. Um, one thing that is very helpful to do too is what you can actually do is you can look at the pulmonary acceleration time in pulse wave Doppler and systole. You'll just get to, what you'll do is you'll get a short axis view of the heart. You'll pulse wave Doppler right at the uh, level of the pulmonary valve. Um, and then what you'll measure is how long it takes to go from uh, lowest pressure to highest pressure. And if your acceleration time is less, or lowest velocity to highest velocity, and if your acceleration time is less than 100, that's sort of abnormal and is concerning for high uh, pressures. This is a patient I saw, which uh, was a 56-year-old guy with massive PE. Here you can measure um, uh, CW Doppler through the TR jet to give you a max velocity from the TR and then a max uh, pulmonary pressure. This is a patient who is mechanically ventilating. What you can see in the IVC is a large uh, nimba being tumor in this person's IVC. Uh, he had renal cell carcinoma. Um, um, and what you can see is that you don't really uh, hear when you do CW Doppler through the pulmonic valve in this patient, we didn't see any regurgitant jet. Um, what we were able to do is also do pulse wave Doppler right at the pulmonic valve. And what we could measure is you can measure uh, the Doppler profile uh, of uh, blood flow through the pulmonic valve, and you can measure this acceleration time from the start to the peak is over 100 milliseconds. So it's less concerning for pulmonary hypertension. And so in this patient, when you ask what his RVSP is or what his pulmonary pressures are, you can tell that his RVSP is not particularly high. Your um, IVC assessment is confounded by mechanical ventilation, but in general, it's, his TR velocity is less than 2.9 and his pulmonary acceleration time is over 100. And so it wasn't like this person um, uh, even, it wasn't like this person had even a massive PE, which is what we were originally billed when we were taking care of him. Um, assessing the RV's relationship with the LV. The RV, as I said, is mechanically coupled to LV contraction. That's why we see McConnell signs uh, to the point where change in chamber volume in one chamber is really gonna affect the pressures and the volumes in the contralateral chambers. Most of that's due to pericardial constraint. This is a nice article from Barry Borlaug, um, which shows that in acute RV distension, what ends up happening is your LV pressures increase for any volume 
and an acute LV distension, the same thing occurs in the RV, where the RV pressures at any given volume are higher. Um, and so both of these chambers, volumes and fillings really do, um, really do influence each other. Um, and um, this is similar, um, this is similar uh, articles, uh, similar research from Barry Borlaug, which I will uh, brief, brief over in the um, interest of time. But you can see how in situations where the LV is large, dilated, and poorly functional, it can impact on the LV or impact on the RV. And similarly, when the RV itself is large and dilated and poorly functional, it can impact the LV as well. Um, and the reason why this happens is because pericardial pressure increases more steeply with left heart filling at, wire, at higher right heart volumes, which really can demonstrate how the RV-LV interdependence alters chamber stiffnesses. So that's why in heart failure, diuresing um, uh, is not just uh, something that relieves the breathing, but also something that improves pressure because you're improving uh, and you're optimizing filling conditions of both chambers. Um, what you want to look for is you want to look for the degree of reciprocal changes in ventricular filling profiles. You want to look for ventricular coupling and dimensions and pressures, and you can look for a normal septal um, motion or effect on the other ventricle. Here you see a patient in tamponade where as the LV is getting bigger, the RV is getting smaller. That's a person who needs their pericardial space strength, either surgically or uh, with a catheter. So in conclusion, the RVs are really complicated uh, ventricle um, and the geometry is complex and necessary for cardiac function. Um, and as function is really dictated by its structure, its relationship to the LV, its preload, its afterload and contractility. Echo, while a powerful tool in assessing the RV, um, is not perfect, but it does help us assess the RV accurately and quickly. Thank you guys.